Garish Nation, welcome back to our preseason kickoff. Excited to be back in the booth. Mike, how's LA? I'm finally back after, frankly, just being all over the country the past month. I uh, I spent a few weeks in Minnesota for wedding planning. Then I had a friend's wedding in Madison, Wisconsin. Then went back to Minnesota and then spent a week in New York City for another wedding to uh, meet up with some old friends also when I was there. So needless to say, I was just jumping around all over the place. It was a lot of fun, pretty exhausting. One common theme, though, it was hot AF everywhere. Uh, so I have to say the L.A. weather when I landed was noticeably better in comparison. I, what I was telling people is uh, basically it's like outdoor AC. That's the best way I could describe it. Felt really nice. How's hot, Lana? Honestly, couldn't tell you. We've uh, we've been traveling just about every weekend since May, getting all the travel out of the way as we gear up for football season so I can get back on the couch and, and sink into some college football action. We've also been peppering the country, went to the same wedding with you in, in Wisconsin. We've been in Texas, Napa, beach trip to Georgia. So been a really fun summer, but excited that we finally have college football back and, and get to talk about some football. Definitely. the We're not quite at the point where the weather is starting to become crisper, but we're getting closer to the point where the weather should be getting crisper and the leaves will start to turn. It's the, it's the point of the year where the anticipation is starting to build, one of my favorite times of the year. Um, anyway, this show is going to have two segments, conference realignment, pretty big topic in college football recently. Um, we're going to talk about that, the considerations, and then we're also going to do a recruiting update. Overall, we've had a ridiculously quiet offseason, I would say. And that's a good thing in college football. You don't want to be hearing about players getting in trouble with the law, a bunch of shakeups with coaches, things like that. Considering we had a couple multiple, uh, considering we had multiple emergency podcasts just to go over coaching changes before, um, I consider that that's a good thing that we're in this quiet stretch. I agree. Really quiet, uh, off season. I think the only news so far on the injury front, we lost back up tight end Mitchell Evans. He's likely out for the season due to a foot injury. We've alluded to this before. It's another freak, weird foot injury for Notre Dame. We seem to have one or two every year. Um, wonder if there's something up with the Under Armour shoes. And, and again, we're, we're not medical experts, not here to you know make a claim against Under Armour or anything like that. But another fluke foot injury. Unfortunately, Mitchell Evans done for the season. But other than that, uh, roster seems pretty healthy. Positive news on Avery Davis's ACL recovery. So pretty much across the board on roster management, Notre Dame's looking pretty good going into summer camp. Yeah, really just the running back position is where we're getting a little thin. But um agree, it's it's been pretty quiet. The foot injuries, that's something that it's when we that's the one area we put our conspiracy conspiracy theory hats on a little bit, but uh it does seem like we've had quite a few of those over the year. Um anyway, we'll be back in our weekly cadence in August. We're gonna be going over roster previews and schedule previews, but we wanted to start the season off with recruiting. It really is the lifeblood of college football. And then conference alignment, really the biggest threat to Notre Dame's independence in our lifetime. Should we dive in? Let's do it. We will be disciplined. We will be tough. We will work tirelessly. But we will do it with the understanding that no one person, no one coach is more important than another. Conference realignment and Notre Dame's independence. We covered this in our first season on the show, and we're going to start by very briefly recapping what we said last year, and that was a very adamant Notre Dame will stay independent, and the reason for it was really threefold. One, a national presence with NBC as our broadcast partner, along with our five ACC games every year. 
it essentially guaranteed one road game in California every single year against USC or Stanford. And it almost always guaranteed one game in the Southeast. The Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina teams in the ACC almost always had one road game. And then not to mention the the home games in, in the Midwest. And so that national presence really boosted our brand, boosted our recruiting footprint. The second was scheduling flexibility. Um, we got to schedule across the country. We got to schedule really cool, unique matchups. Wisconsin, we've got Ohio State coming up and Alabama and Texas A&M. Um, historically, Oklahoma and Texas. So there's real scheduling flexibility that put us in marquee matchups every year. And then the third thing was money. Um, for a long time, NBC was the premier TV contract. That certainly evolved over time as other deals have been renewed and we hit the end of the life cycle of the NBC contract. But generally speaking, combining the road game money we'd get with the ACC and the home game money we'd get with NBC, that money spoke volumes and the autonomy of our brand and how that resonated with our fan base. And we were always on primetime. We were always in an afternoon spot. And all of that drove revenue, viewership, advertising dollars, ticket revenue. Um, we felt pretty strongly that that would keep Notre Dame independent for the foreseeable future. Until this summer, and quite a bit changed. Definitely. I think if I were to summarize the benefits of independence, it's frankly for the national brand that Notre Dame is, for the national composition of our fan base and alums, independence allowed us to uh, opt- optimize our outreach and um, efficiency like with those different like considerations. And then from a money standpoint, like Brett said, it actually – we were bringing in quite a bit of money in the past, like more so than other teams. Lately, it, that hasn't necessarily been the case. We've been a little bit under – but it's been good enough to where uh, it's been a bit of a cost, but not like a big cost and something that we can stomach given the other uh, challenges. Now, moving into what's changed, really the big, uh, the big change here is, is money and the prospect of how much money certain teams could be making. We don't know exactly how much yet. I mean, these negotiations are ongoing. But what we do know is that the current uh, – we do know what the current gap in TV revenue is between us and other programs. And that's something that gives an idea of how much Notre Dame can stomach. We don't want a massive gap, but the current gap we have is something that uh, clearly we're okay with. Um, and now if that grows dramatically, I think that's where things where things change. Currently, Notre Dame makes about 20 to $25 million per year on the NBC deal. And that's just for the home games. So that's not considering the other piece that we get, which is uh, our revenue piece as a partial member of the ACC. So... When we were a full member that one year, I think we made like 12 or 13. I think like the incremental benefit we got that was like 12 or 13 more than we typically would. I think in a typical season where we have our home games, we're independent on NBC, and then we also get the partial ACC membership, usually it's about 10 million. So let's say that we're making somewhere between 30, 35 million. Um, ACC teams, they make about 36. So that's more than we would in a normal independent season. Big 10 is about 45, and the SEC is about 55. So as you can see, there's a bit of a gap between us. Uh, it's somewhere around 20 to 25, depending on how you measure it. So that's a cost that Notre Dame's okay stomaching right now. It's something that we're like good with for the benefits of independence. And frankly, at that point, I think I'm okay with it. I think like the other benefits we get uh, more than um, outweigh that little incremental money. Now, the problem is that the projections for these super conferences uh, are significantly raising the amount of money that these conferences could get. So the Big Ten, the SEC... Now that Oklahoma and Texas are in the SEC, now that UC, USC and UCLA are in the Big Ten, there are projections that these schools could be making 80 to 100 million per year. 
Um, again, this isn't finalized. These negotiations are ongoing. But if that's the case and we stick with our current deal, you're getting to the point where we could be potentially 65, 70 million uh, below below these schools. I don't care how wealthy your fan base is. When you get to that point, that's that's a significant disadvantage. If you have bad seasons, like alums may not be, maybe they're not like giving as much in to help support the program. That extra money is like guaranteed money that you're getting in no matter what. 100 million, no matter what per year, that's going to make a difference. You can also like utilize the money that your alums would be giving to like other purposes. Maybe it's easier to build certain facilities. Maybe it's easier to invest in private travel. Now, we probably should have led with this, too. This is an area where Mike has a lot of expertise. He actually works in the entertainment industry and has a little bit of inside baseball here. Mike, one of the things that I think a lot of folks listening to the show might not appreciate is, well, how does the per-school revenue go up so much when you go to these super conferences, right? Like, why is it that if you go from 10 teams to 20 teams, the revenue for really kind of the same group of schools can go from 50 million a year to 100 million a year? What what leads to that multiplier impact? Typically, when you do the math, you think naturally, okay, two plus two equals four, right? But that's not how it works with this collective bargaining. It's more of a two plus two equals five or six or maybe even eight in some of these situations. Essentially, what it is is if all the valuable rights are connected, the conference just has so many options to bundle, divide, tie up the rights in a way to create the most competitive bidding environment possible. Additionally, when they're all together... Uh, this content for the conference is just considered it's just considered must have. So if you're a TV network that wants to be in sports, basically this is something that you have to have. And if you don't have it, it could significantly damage your network. When you have that, you're going to create these uh, pretty ridiculous like bidding environments where uh, no one wants to miss out on a, on their piece. And frankly, a lot of times you'll, you'll find different like media partners uh, overbid. And that, that's essentially what multiplies the value teams could generate on their own. Now, tying this back to Notre Dame, while Notre Dame is extremely valuable in its own right, on its own, it's not going to make or break a network's content portfolio. And this all ties back to this competitive bidding dynamic that I'm saying. Notre Dame in itself is never going to – it's not going to make or break someone's like sport or content portfolio. Um, you can live – NBC, if they lost it, I'm sure they wouldn't be happy about it, but they would be fine. Now, whereas like at Fox, if they lost the Big Ten – that would be that would be a massive hit. That would significantly impact their strategy. That would significantly impact their company. They would have to just completely change their approach to sports and also just their, their network as a whole. Um, so basically the Big Ten, what I'm saying here is that they just have must-have content that everyone needs to bid on. And they because they have so many different like programs here, coast to coast, uh, they can just bundle it in a way to just optimize uh, people overpaying. So in other words... If there's two super conferences, the SEC and the Big Ten, ESPN needs to have one of those, right? Like if ESPN just swung and missed on both of those and ESPN, the entertainment sports program network, the the sports headquarters of the world, didn't have college football, that'd be a really bad black mark. Versus if you didn't have Notre Dame six home games, but you still had a hundred other games, I guess that's not as big of a black mark not to have. But then... What's the incremental value for UCLA and USC? Like, what do they bring to the table that really kind of unlocks now this massive upside that where, you know, before, yeah, sure, we're talking about conference realignment. We weren't necessarily talking about super conferences. What about UCLA and USC has all of a sudden made that pivot? Yeah, it's a good question, Brett. So incremental value, that's what it's all about. These 
Big Ten, SEC, they're not just inviting everyone in. They're looking very closely to see which teams they can bring in that are going to help juice like the TV revenue for school. And for UCLA and USC, this was this is quite a big gift for the Big Ten. So first and foremost, the most direct impact is that the Big Ten network, uh, which generates quite a quite a bit of TV, TV revenue, will now be carried by all the cable TV operators in the Southern California area, and actually like probably just much of the West Coast and and California as a whole. So the way that the Big Ten network gets money through this is any person who has a cable package on the West Coast that's, uh, that now carries the Big Ten network, the cable provider pays a carriage fee to the Big Ten. So if there are now 2 million extra people that have this, uh, like Comcast or Time Warner Cable or whoever, they basically have to pay the Big Ten network like $10 per incremental like person. So that's like a direct impact because they have to carry it. Like people are going to be watching these teams. So that's like, that's like the, I would say that's like the first thing that happens. Um, and that's pretty significant. The, the, that network brings in quite a bit of TV revenue for the, uh, for the different teams in the, in the conference. Now, uh, that's not the only factor though. Additionally, now you have just also more interesting matchups too. USC, they haven't been doing quite as well like in the last like t- you know 10 15 years or so but they're sleeping giant and network executives are are fully aware that if they reclaim some of their old glory they could be putting up some huge matchups that could be bringing in a lot of tv revenue so even though they haven't been doing uh well recently tv networks certainly are, are they're looking at uh or tv network executives are certainly looking at the upside here to uh you know to to figure out like how much it could be worth um and so that's quite a bit of upside and then you also combine that with the ability to program all day, uh, coast to coast, and it shows that like USC and UCLA are, are, are some of the most value accretive new members that were out there. So I think if I were to summarize, it's it's it like forces all the cable operators to add the Big Ten network. Then on top of that, you're adding like the reach generally to the West Coast, and then these programs also have quite a bit of upside for a lot of big matchups. You add that in, and it's just like uh, it's just like all incremental value. And we also can't forget Texas and Oklahoma made a very similar move, but to the SEC, what, just a year ago. And I kind of put Tennessee, uh, uh, sorry, Texas in a, in a similar bucket as USC, big TV market, entire state of Texas. Um, big national brand with a history, despite really struggling and underwhelming performances recently, but huge upside if, if they get it right. And so I think... One of the things is, as we think about this too, is the Pac-12 value from a TV perspective, way down when they just lost the LA market. The Texas situation is maybe a little different because you still have Texas Tech, but like, and, and, you know, Baylor and, and, you know, TCU, like there's still other Texas schools in the Big 12, but losing Texas A&M and Texas over the last, what, five, 10 years now has been a really big blow to that addressable TV market for the Big 12. I think losing those TV markets, losing those viewers' eyes on screen, one of the biggest reasons why we're seeing this trend towards two, maybe three conferences, because the Pac-12 and Big 12 have just taken massive blows. Like they, they can replace with Cincinnati or with you know other conference USA teams or you know AAC teams, but they're just not going to be replacing the same number of eyeballs that you have with Texas and Oklahoma and Texas A&M or USC and UCLA, like Boise State just doesn't add that many eyeballs compared to what you're losing in in LA. It just, it just doesn't stack up from a TV perspective. So then let's tie this back. 
where's Notre Dame fit as, as a playing chip in all this? So Notre Dame is by far the most valuable domino left. And that probably, Notre Dame haters, that's probably not something that they want to hear, but it's, it's just a fact. Uh, Andy Staples, he is a writer at The Athletic. He pulled together this great analysis a few weeks ago. Um, and actually my, my future father-in-law, who's a USC fan, he actually like sent it to me. And he's like, wow, he's like, I didn't, he's like, I didn't realize Notre Dame was so valuable. But basically what he did is he, he looked at like TV value for potential Big Ten and SEC options. So these are ACC schools. These are Big 12 schools. These are Pac-12 schools. It's Notre Dame. Um, and he looked at the games from 2015 to 2019. That was the database that he was working with. And he looked how many games generated over 1 million viewers, 2 million viewers, 3 million viewers, 4 million plus viewers. And that four, I have to note that 4 million plus viewers, those are games that really move the needle from like a value standpoint. Um, all of them do. You want to like, it, it's really important like how many games you have at different thresholds. Uh, but that 4 million plus is, is really a big one. But he, so one other uh, thing that he did here to clean the data is he excluded games against Big Ten or SEC teams to keep the data set clean. So coincidentally, if you're a team that plays a lot of games against those conferences, you could say it's kind of influencing the numbers a little bit. It's maybe not a, a fair point of con- comparison. Um, and the short summary is that ND blew everybody out of the water. Like I was actually, I'm a big Notre Dame fan, obviously, and I was I was pretty surprised quite how uh, how, how far and above we were. So for instance. For the games over 1 million viewers, and this is an important metric, it just kind of shows like generally how much interest you're generating. Notre Dame had 67 such games. Clemson was the closest and in second, and they only had 34. So pretty much like almost like half. And then you combine that with Notre Dame's national reach. Uh, you know, it's not a surprise that we just have our, our, so hypothetically, if we were to pick a conference to go to, we would have our pick just because we offer so much TV value. And, uh, for these 4 million plus games, uh, he didn't like he didn't provide like a ton of specific detail on Notre Dame, but he did essentially like the takeaway I was finding in other articles is that that area in particular Notre Dame does really well. Like we, we have a lot of big games, we have a lot of big matchups, we have a lot of games that are also like moving the needle. So it's not even just like those games that generate over one million. If you look at games over four million plus, the, some of the big needle movers were were far and above there too. So any way you measure it, we're just we're just generating. We just have like the potential to add a ton of incremental value. And like I said, it's not it's not concentrated. So if it was like, if our fan base was entirely based in Ohio, right, uh, and then we joined the Big Ten, there's not as much incremental value there because they already have Ohio State and they have you know they have other teams in the Midwest. But because our fan base is very national, we generate interest nationally. It's uh, it's 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 like huge viewership and it's all over the place. So it kind of like hits everything. We're really kind of like the perfect addition to any conference. Like the SEC, they would take us in a heartbeat. For the SEC, we would actually. It's interesting to think about because I don't think we would actually ever join the SEC because we're not like a cultural fit. But if you were thinking about like which conferences that we could add the most incremental value, I think far and away would be the SEC because they're heavily concentrated in the Southeast. You add Notre Dame and they then they pretty much have like strong exposure like everywhere. And then you add another big brand. Just an interesting thought exercise. But takeaway is is uh, any any conference would be ecstatic if we if we joined. So pulling this together. I'm going to kind of summarize a quick pro-con of the case to stay independent and the case to join a conference. Flexibility um, in scheduling um, and coast-to-coast scheduling really at this point is about the same. Like if, if we stay independent, we're going to schedule USC and Stanford and Navy. 
We're going to schedule a few ACC teams. We're going to probably alternate in various Big Ten teams, whether that's Purdue or Michigan State or Michigan, and go and pluck off a couple of major opponents, uh, like Alabama and Texas A&M and Wisconsin and, and Arkansas and others that we have coming up. If we join the Big Ten, you'd keep now USC, you'd lose Stanford, you'd pick up Michigan every year, probably Michigan State or Purdue every year, and in your non-conference, you could probably still pick up your Navy game, maybe keep your Stanford game. You would lose the ACC games, but you'd be replacing them with you know, the rest of the Big Ten, which is kind of an offset, if not better. And that's still just about as much flexibility as we have in, in national reach. So independence versus joining a super conference, I think on flexibility, probably about the same. Autonomy for the brand, this is the one big thing that I think independence still plays a big deal. I think if Jack Swarbrick is negotiating with the Big Ten behind the scenes, it's the one thing I think he should be most focused on, and it's guaranteeing our exposure. So to me, one of the biggest pitfalls to Nebraska joining the Big Ten is that they have been stuck with 11 a.m. Central Time kickoffs for the last decade. They have been stuck with no one watching their games. There's no national recruits watching their games. There's no press coverage. There is nothing going on in Lincoln, Nebraska since they joined the Big Ten. And they've been stuck playing a lot of games against Rutgers and a lot of games against Maryland and a lot of games against just that don't matter, that are just meaningless November football. And it's really burdened that program. So if I'm Jack Swarbrick and I'm talking to the Big Ten athletic director, my one demand is that Notre Dame never kicks off before 3 p.m. Eastern time, ever. And if you get that, I think a lot of the autonomy for the brand, a lot of that kind of guaranteed exposure, like Notre Dame unique identity, um, you definitely lose some of it. I don't know if it's enough to overcome the money. And so then I think that's the last big thing is money. And we've spent a lot of time talking about it. I know college football is a sport of, you know, 18 to 22 year old athletes. I know it's tied to academics and student athletes and all that. But like at the end of the day, this is a billion plus dollar industry. It's been about money for a long time. It's been about money back from when Notre Dame got a radio contract. We got a national radio contract to be innovative, to be at the forefront of college football. Well, now that is joining a super conference, the equivalent of going to a national radio con contract in you know, the 1920s, today, that equivalent is joining a super conference. And so if we can get an independent deal, like you said earlier, that's, you know, 70, $80 million, and a super conference deal is 100, maybe we don't join a super conference. But if the gap is 100 to 50 or 100 to 40, yeah, you're just going to be too far behind on your ability to pay coaches, to get private charters for the assistant coaches to go and recruit for keeping your facilities up to date for NIL deals, like all of these things that, you know, did Marcus Freeman get, but Brian Kelly didn't get, or did Brian Kelly not ask it the right way, or all of these other things we're talking about is solved if you go and get an extra $50 million a year in the budget. Um, and so money, I think, is at the end of the day going to be the biggest tiebreaker. If money is close, if NBC or someone else steps up in a really big way to have the independent Notre Dame contract, sure, then I think brand autonomy um, and flexibility might be the tiebreaker. 
if there's a big gap in the money, there's just not that much more autonomy anymore being independent than there is joining a conference. And that has changed a lot, frankly, in the last two months. It's changed even more so over the last 10 years. So, Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll tee up for maybe one more question here. Is there any chance it's not the Big Ten? Like, is there any chance you go down a path where you join the ACC or we join the SEC? Or, or is this really, you know, the hypothetical ends in a two-conference Super League? I do think we're probably heading towards two super conferences, but I will say initially it seemed like this was coming together really fast. I know when we were talking about this, uh, right when the news broke about UCLA and USC, it seemed like, okay, wow, all the dominoes are going to fall in a matter of weeks. Everyone's going to make a decision. And then, and then it seemed like everyone was waiting on Notre Dame. And then for the reasons I mentioned, Notre Dame's super valuable. So Jack Swarbrick kind of took a, took a break and he's like, you know what? Let's just sit back and not rush into anything. And so now it seems like we're kind of in a holding pattern where everyone's kind of waiting for us. Um, I think like the Big Ten, you know, there are, other, there are other schools that they're looking at, but it seems like their priority is, can we get Notre Dame in? And then there are rumors that like Stanford would come in with us as well. So I, I don't know when the next domino is going to fall, but I think one other thing to consider, um, this is something I, I uh, wrote a note down, but I've read that, like, the SEC is potentially actually, like, aligned with Notre Dame on wanting the Irish to maintain independence. So, essentially, their thought process is that if we're joining a conference, we're joining the Big Ten because regionally it makes sense. We have arrivals there. It's a better cultural fit. And they don't want us to join because then that would give the Big Ten potentially a huge dollar advantage. So, if they're getting 80 to 100 without us joining, I mean, it's pretty interesting to think what the Big Ten would be getting once Notre Dame joins. Also, we've generally been on the same page with the SEC on wanting more playoff spots. The Big Ten actually notably they they voted against it when we had that big that big, you know, that big deal about like playoff expansion uh, a little while back. So, it seems like we're in lockstep with the SEC on a lot of things. And so I wouldn't discount the ability of Notre Dame and the SEC if they're in, on the same page to maybe kind of cause some of these things to slow down. But I know it's kind of like a long winding Answer, but I, I think my thought process is I think we probably are likely headed for two super conferences because the money is just too good. And I think where while the SEC could be very interesting for Notre Dame, uh, and I think we could, if we join there, I, I kind of mentioned, I think the incremental value that we would offer would be bigger there than anywhere else. I think we could potentially maybe even get more money there than we would from the Big Ten. But it's hard to imagine Notre Dame going to a conference that's in many ways kind of just like a football you know, no matter what, like willing to kind of do whatever it takes to have a good football program. You have a little bit of that in the Big Ten, but these schools are more academically focused. Again, like regionally, it's uh, it makes more sense for us, especially now that USC is in the picture, UCLA, Stanford. If we join Stanford, we'll probably be in the picture as well. So it, it's hard to imagine that we wouldn't join the Big Ten. Now, moving to like the part of your question on the ACC, it's uh, I, I, I would you know the ACC has done a lot of good things for Notre Dame, but there's just no way I, I could see us joining them full time. The money's just not going to be close enough. Like you said, Brett, we just can't compete. If we're going to be seventy million dollars short compared to some of our rivals, that's that's just no way that you can compete. Like in this current landscape, you're not going to be able to keep up with the private jet travel. You're not going to be able to keep up with the facilities. NIL is a bigger piece. All that money. If we're seventy million short a year, that's seventy million dollars that boosters can't like funnel to other things. A big piece of that is NIL. So. I think my answer is, if we're joining a conference, it's probably going to be the Big Ten. 
as, as, as fun as it would be to think about us joining the SEC, I think that would be, I think that would be a lot of fun, honestly. It, it just wouldn't, we just cherish our rivalries too much. We cherish like this, uh, this national, uh, this, this national schedule that we have that the Big Ten would be able to offer us. And, um, we also just like regionally again and academically, it just makes, it makes too much sense. Yeah, I, I agree. The other important context that I think gets left out of a lot of the other narrative is the other scenarios factoring into the timing. So one, I've heard a lot of people say Notre Dame's value won't erode. We should just wait to be the last mover. I, I don't know about that. Like if, if you said that Clemson and Florida State and Oregon and Washington and Miami and, and Baylor and all of these other schools made a move and UNC, everyone made a move. The incremental value of Notre Dame, there's a risk it goes down over time. Like right now, we know Notre Dame has all the leverage. I don't know if Notre Dame has all the leverage if we wait. And I've also heard people say, well, Notre Dame's contract expires with NBC in 2025, so why not just wait for that to expire and and then we'll renew it? I, I can tell you every single contract that I've ever worked with, you don't wait till it expires to negotiate it. That That loses your leverage. Swarbrick knows that's coming up in three years. NBC knows that's coming up in three years. There's a reason why Notre Dame anonymously leaked that our asking price for a renewal was $75 million. Like that was, you know, very, very intentional by someone within the athletic department. And so I don't think we need to move in the next month, but I think we are on the clock and I think we're on the clock in a big way. The one other component that maybe lets us slow it down a little bit is the ACC TV contract. So the ACC TV contract says that all teams currently in the ACC, regardless if those teams stay in the ACC, need to share their TV revenue with everyone else. So if Clemson goes to the SEC and gets paid $100 million a year, that $100 million immediately goes back to the other 14 ACC schools and is divided by those 14 teams, not to Clemson, even if Clemson is no longer in the ACC. Every lawyer that's looked at this contract has said it's bulletproof. There's no way to get out of it. There's no way to buy it out. There's no way to amend it. There's no way to change it. So the ACC schools could be really locked in for the next decade plus. That is probably going to be the last domino to fall. Clemson, Florida State, Miami, UNC, probably the last domino to fall. The last thing that I'd say, and so now some of this is maybe not directly to Notre Dame, but the one part of this that I've heard a lot of people, um, I don't know, maybe feel bad about is the Kansas states of the world, the Oregon states, the Arizona schools, the Texas techs, the, the TCs, the, the schools that are kind of left behind in all of this, right? Or if you play out a scenario where Clemson, Florida State, Miami, UNC all jump ship um, to the SEC, you know, then it'd be the Wake Forest and Virginia and Virginia Tech were just kind of left behind and they went from power five to just irrelevance, right? My response to that is I, I get it. I feel bad. I know they're big fan bases, but like a lot of this stuff is new as is, right? Like Penn State was independent until 1993. Everyone talks about the Penn State, Ohio State rivalry. Penn State and Ohio State didn't play from 1980 to 1993 they weren't a rival until Penn State entered the scene the big south uh, sorry the big eight doesn't exist anymore the southern conference doesn't exist anymore like college football as we knew it 30 or 40 years ago changed long before conference realignment and it changed long before then like conferences have been always realigning rivalries have 
always been changing. We, we haven't had Duke Maryland in a basketball rivalry in 15, 20 years. And that was one of the best rivalries of, of my childhood. Um, so the evolution will continue to play out for money, but that is not a new concept. And so Notre Dame fans are like, Oh, I really don't want to sell out for the money. We've been selling out for the, this sport has been selling out for money. Every team has been selling out for money. Notre Dame as a program has been selling out for money since the sport has existed it's what makes Notre Dame today. Like without the football program, we don't have a double-digit endowment, a billion-dollar endowment, funding all of our academic programs and, and making Notre Dame the institution it is today. So I know it, it feels a little uncomfortable. It feels a little dirty letting money drive everything, but that is the history of the sport. We're just now much more at the forefront of that um, where, where we are in, in today's landscape. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I think if you're not looking ahead, if you're not looking at your program as, frankly, you need to look at it as a professional sports organization at this point. If you're not, you're going to get left behind. I think Notre Dame's been doing a pretty good job of that. Certainly, we're not doing whatever it takes like some programs like some programs do. Like We, we, we certainly have some values that we, that we stick to. But money does drive everything. And I think, like you were saying, like we were saying before, if, if you're not – if you're if you're too far behind there, you're just not going to be able to get the coaches. You're not going to be able to get the necessary facilities. You're not going to be able to get the recruits, and and you'll become irrelevant. It is kind of a shame for these mid tier teams. I don't know over. I I can't decide if I think if it's bad for college football or not, because college football is historically so regional. You have the conferences. There's no central power really that can that can really like force everyone to get in line like the NFL does. Like in the NFL, when they're like negotiating and making decisions, they're, they're, one of their biggest considerations is reach and popularity of the sport. With college football, everyone's kind of acting more as like independent actors. So everyone's kind of looking out for their own interests. And what that causes is it can cause decisions that may not necessarily lead to optimal popularity and optimal reach. So if these teams like Kansas State, if these teams like Iowa State, if they kind of fall off, and are just like not relevant anymore. Are those fans, are they going to lose interest in college football or are they going to go root for another team? That's the question that I'm not sure about. That's one thing I'm, I'm going to be monitoring over the years. I hope, I hope not. I hope college football stays popular. It seems like it's, there's been plenty of dramatic shifts over the years and college football has always been able to grow in popularity and, and stay strong. But that is something I want to monitor. I think from a, for a, from a Notre Dame fan perspective, some of these things sound pretty exciting. It's, but yeah, well, for, in terms of the health of the sport, that, that's a question that remains to be seen. Now, I have, I have two other like little side notes I want to mention. So, Brett, you mentioned like the Notre Dame leaked the seventy-five million is what they're seeking. So that was something that came out. Who knows where it came from? But I thought it was interesting that if you kind of do the math of like the spread, roughly of what the difference is between Notre Dame uh, now versus like SEC and Big Ten schools, that number you could kind of back into it. So I don't know if it was just like some reporter who just kind of backed into that and they thought that like roughly that would probably be the number that would work for us. But it was something that I thought was interesting that it kind of generally kind of mirrors what our, our the cost that we can stomach right now is. And then one other point on the ACC grant of rights. So yeah, that is that is something that's holding all these teams basically like they're handcuffed to their conference. It runs through twenty. I think it's like what is it like twenty thirty five or twenty thirty six. That was twenty thirty six. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple. There's one component. One component is the grant of rights, which, like you said, it's like they if they go to another conference, they're still like. They're still like stuck. Like they're basically like forfeiting all of this money, which is going to be like 30, 40 million a year. Um, and they're not going to be able to make, make it up. They're essentially like just completely like eliminating that. And then they also have to pay an exit fee. And that exit fee is three times what their average revenue is. 
So you're looking for a school like Clemson and Florida State. Over the course of this entire deal, that could be hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's that's not like a $50 million buyout for a coach. This is this is something that's probably – that's a much more significant cost to boosters and something like that. So I don't know. I don't think this is something that, like, you can just go to boosters and be like, hey, can you write a check? It's something that I think is actually, like, a pretty meaningful roadblock. And um, I think for the ACC, it kind of keeps – probably keeps some of them from, from leaving for a while. I mean, that's going to be a big domino at some point because they do have some good programs there. For sure. With that, let's turn to our second segment and cover recruiting. The chance to lead the, the football program at the University of Notre Dame is an opportunity of a lifetime, and I would never take that for granted. Being this leader of this program, it isn't about one person, and it never will be. Being the leader of this program is about understanding to be successful on this journey, it's going to take others. And we're going to have to do this as a team. Note to our listeners, this recruiting update was recorded before the news that Keon Kelly was taking an unofficial visit to Alabama this weekend. Recruiting update. So we try to not spend too much time during the season covering recruiting just because there's so much going on with the team and, and, and opponents and, and games and, and player development. But off season and bye week is always a great time to talk about recruiting and recruiting has been a huge headline for Notre Dame in the last month so it's very relevant very top of mind um, in, in the Notre Dame headlines right now uh, in the last month we've added five top 200 players Charles Jugasa offensive tackle I still don't by the way have the pronunciation keys on on the uh, on the high school players we'll, we'll get those once they get on campus but um, Charles is the uh, fifth best offensive tackle in the country Christian Gray, number 80 overall recruit at cornerback. Jaden Greathouse, number 108 overall recruit at wide receiver. Micah Bell, number 113 at cornerback as well. Enrico Flores rounds it out. The 27th best wide receiver in the class coming in at 203 overall in the class. What that's done is it's kept Notre Dame right at the upper echelon of, of um, the, the 2023 recruiting uh, cycle. They're currently ranked as the number two recruiting class. Now, as a reminder, there's almost certainly going to be a drop off for Notre Dame. This happens every year. The, the analogy I like to use is what they call the blue wave in the 2020 election, where a lot of the Democratic votes were, you know, sitting in absentee ballots and write-ins. And so the early polls that were in person that were counted first were more red, and it slowly shifted blue as as the mail-in ballots were wrote in that pundits kind of called it the blue wave that's similar in recruiting too with five-star recruits there's like a five-star wave they're usually the last to commit they usually want to see where all the other chips fall and who their teammates are going to be and how their senior season goes and what nil deal they can negotiate and so almost certainly the five stars and high and four stars disproportionately come last and they disproportionately go to alabama and ohio state and georgia and lately texas a&m so Right now, we're number two. Ohio State's number one. But for context, Alabama wasn't even a top 25 recruiting class on July 1st. We're recording this on July 27th, and they're already up to number five in the country. They've they've knocked off several big commits here in the last few weeks. So we would expect Notre Dame to slip back from number two. We'll get to it a little bit later on on where we think um, it'll ultimately shake out. But off to a really terrific start. Maybe the only knock is missing out on a couple of top targets. The biggest one, probably five-star quarterback, Dante Moore, 
uh, when, when we had our last recording earlier in this offseason, it really looked like Notre Dame was the front runner to get more. He ultimately committed to Oregon. It sounds like NIL was a really big deal in his recruiting process. And that currently leaves us without a quarterback uh, in this recruiting class. There's a shot. We get a decommit something. There's a Baylor uh, QB, uh, Novasad, who's a top 300 recruiter, a pretty solid four-star that, that we could land him. Um, not sure, time will tell, but right now, quarterback may be the biggest miss in this class. Um, and some other, you know, top 50, top 100 recruits where, where we're in the hunt, but that, that's part of recruiting. You're not going to get them all. Um, quarterback, probably the, the biggest glaring, uh, missing link in this class. Yep. I think it's important to put this class in perspective historically. Uh, so like you said, there's the blue wave. So it's hard to tell, you know, where we're going to shake out. It's like, okay, are we just kind of ahead because we have a lot of commits or are we ahead because we're actually recruiting well? Well, the answer is we're, we are ranked highly because we are actually recruiting extremely well and at a, a pace that typically we haven't seen at Notre Dame. So we already have 15 top 300 recruits. There were, there were 15 in last year's class. Kelly only had more than 15 once. And that was back in 2013 following the BCS title game appearance when we had a lot of juice. Obviously, that slowed down a little bit after after the Manti Teo scandal, which, by the way, there's a documentary on that coming out in a few weeks. And then after Coach uh, Kelly was flirting with the Eagles. Um, we, we, also, t- we, we, we also need to clarify, it was a title game appearance in name only. We, we just always need to remember it was really like Notre Dame scrimmaged against Alabama in the national title game. But I get it. Technically a title game appearance. We pretty much let Alabama run their plays. It was kind of like a walkthrough for <laughs> Alabama. But anyways, we, we can, uh, I don't want to re- relive that game too much. It's a, it's a, it's a painful memory, but basically we're, we're at 15 right now and it's still pretty early. So certainly we're going to be above 15 top 300 recruits. I think when it's all said and done, we also, an area that we haven't done as well in the past is with the top 100 recruits. We've gotten some here or there, but we currently have five top 100 recruits and the rankings shake up a little bit. Like a week ago, like we had six, but then one guy fell out of the top 100 when they redid the rankings. But so we have five right now, and we have four on the defensive side of the ball. That's the this is the most going all the way back to 2008, and that was the uh, the famous class that had Mike Floyd, Kyle Rudolph, and Dane Christ. Uh, so a very memorable recruiting class that we got a lot of really good players out of. And uh, like I said, four of those top 100 players are on defense. So that's a record for Notre Dame since. 24-7 began tracking this stuff back in 2002. Historically, we've recruited a little bit more heavily on offense. Actually, I would say much more heavily on offense. Just three times the last 21 cycles, Notre Dame has had more top 300 recruits on, on defense than offense. So it's it's good to kind of be building up more of this talent on the defensive side of the ball. And this is a shift, I think, we started to see it even a little bit last year. Freeman just was frankly just recruiting his butt off last year, and, and this is just a continuation of that. Yeah, and I think the other... Big thing that stands out is recruiting at key positions. Um, most analytical models generally follow two rules of thumbs for how recruiting translates or how talent translates to winning in college football. Teams with great offensive and defensive lines, both recruiting and player development, right? So there's coaching involved, but offensive and defensive lines, if you are great in those areas, that is a recipe to consistently be a top 25 team. So think about Wisconsin, think about Clemson, put Notre Dame in that category. If you have great offensive and defensive lines, you'll just control the line of scrimmage. That will let you beat uh, inferior opponents consistently, and that's how you win 9-10 games. But if you want to be elite, if you want to win championships, if you want to be a top-five team, 
the offensive line and defensive line still needs to be the, that's sort of the table stake. But what really matters is elite quarterback play, elite wide receivers, and elite cornerbacks. And my easiest analogies for that is looking at Alabama, who's had six first or second round draft picks in the NFL in the last three NFL drafts at wide receiver alone. And when they torched us in the college football playoff two years ago, it was clear their wide receivers led by Devontae Smith were doing things that we just did not have that talent on the field. And we were way overmatched and it exposed us. When we lost to Clemson a couple years before that, um, they had Trevor Lawrence, an elite quarterback. They had um, Amari Cooper, now on the Green Bay Packers, getting throws from Aaron Rodgers. And we matched that with Julian Love, right? The elite cornerback offset the elite wide receiver until Julian Love went down with an injury. And while he was in the locker room, they put up 21 unanswered points and the game was over in a blink. So quarterback play, wide receiver play, and cornerback play, analytically, that's what top five teams have that everyone else is missing. And Notre Dame has really struggled in that area. So ticking through historically, in the um, last 11 Brian Kelly recruiting classes, he had nine cornerbacks that were top 300 recruits. Um, zero, most importantly, in the in his last two recruiting cycles. So that's a little less than one per year. Um, and only two of those were in the top 150, right? So we maybe had four stars, but they were like lower end four stars. And we were maybe getting one a year. In Freeman's first two recruiting cycles, this has clearly been an area of focus. We've now had three top 300 recruits. Two of those are in the top 150. Two of those have, have really just recently committed. We, we mentioned them at the start in, in Christian Gray and Micah Bell. And then a very similar story at wide receiver. It's clearly an area where we've swung and missed. It's clearly an area where we've had depth issues. We're, we're down to just six scholarship wide receivers. And one of those is Avery Davis coming back from an ACL tear. And another is Joe Wilkins also coming back from injury. So for context, we have six scholarship wide receivers. Alabama's projected to have 12. Um, we are really making a big step change here too. So historically... In Kelly's last 10 recruiting cycles, we had just one wide receiver um, per year in the top 200. Um, you know, guys like Kevin Austin and Claypool and Aquinius St. Brown. Um, but a big thing to mention here too, maybe even more so than cornerback, wide receiver is a big boomer bust position. A couple examples, Justin Brent. Everyone was so high on Justin Brent. And the biggest thing he's most famous for at Notre Dame is going on a date with an adult film actress. So clearly didn't make an impact on the field. Jordan Johnson was a huge commit we got a couple of years ago. Um, almost a five-star. Didn't work out at Notre Dame. He transferred to UCF, and he's not even starting at UCF. So there's a real boom bust. So with wide receiver especially, quality and quantity is really important. Um, this 2023 class already has three top 200 recruits. In Jaden Greathouse, Braylon James, and Rico Flores. So that quality focus here of top 100, top 200 recruits, um, high-end four stars at both wide receiver and cornerback, um, really hope that starts making a difference for Notre Dame. Um, an, an area where we've historically struggled, but if you can start merging this wide receiver cornerback recruiting with the great offensive lines and defensive lines we've had, that's where Notre Dame makes a jump. That's where we go from a perennial top 25 to a perennial top 5, top 10 program.
And we haven't even mentioned Keon Keeley. So we covered him in prior episodes. He's now the number eight overall recruit in the class. He was one of those people that we got to commit very early. Was someone that Notre Dame just did a great job of evaluating, and he's continued to rise up and up as 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 this recruiting cycle has gone on. So if that holds, though, number eight, he would be the highest ND recruit since Jalen Smith in the 2013 class, who, as Notre Dame fans fondly remember, was essentially an instant hit when he was at Notre Dame. It was very obvious he was going to be an exceptional player, and and he lived up to all the hype throughout his uh, his career. And uh, it's also higher than Cole Komet, Kyle Hamilton, and uh, Michael Mayer. With, if Hamilton's interesting because he surged very late in his recruiting class, and I, I feel like if he had been evaluated properly, people would have ranked him higher. But that's neither here nor there. Let's also spend some spend two minutes on the 2024 recruiting class. So it's early, but we currently hold the number one uh, spot in that cycle, and we have two big-time recent announcements. So the first one, C.J. Carr, number 18 overall, five-star QB, is the first five-star QB recruit for Notre Dame since Dane Chris and Jimmy Clausen. Notably, to the uh, chagrin of Michigan fans, he is Lloyd Carr's grandson, the former Michigan head coach. So this was still in one from our rival's backyard and one from our rival's family, essentially. A huge win for Tommy Reese. There is some speculation that by getting C.J. Carr, that may have been something that, I, I wouldn't say like scared off Dante Moore, but it might be something that kind of like caused him to finally officially move on from Notre Dame. We mentioned there were NIL concerns there too. But look, when you get a five-star uh, five-star QB to commit, you take that every single time. And then the other big recruit is Cam Williams. So he's number 114 overall right now. Wide receiver, That's so that's continuing on that trend of finally building up really good players at these positions in need, particularly at wide receiver. We're also looking good at with uh, with five, uh, five-star receiver Ryan Wingo, who's number five overall. Really good player. There's been a lot of optimism. I think he just wrapped up. He might be, He's either on a visit now or he just wrapped up a visit in Notre Dame. And they're actually, I've seen a couple of picks come in for him to, to come to Notre Dame. So it's, it's early. I don't know if he's deciding anytime soon, but certainly Notre Dame and the people on the beat are feeling pretty good about their chances at getting this, this stud of a receiver. Yeah, great, great start to 2024. Obviously, long ways to go in that cycle. As we look to what's left in 2023, you know, there's not much left, right? So a lot of the headlines have come. Notre Dame fans should not be expecting a lot remaining. There's one more crystal ball uh, out there for Jaden Osbury. He's expected to maybe announce before his high school season starts, maybe not. So there's a chance we get some more good news in, in the next month. He's ranked uh, Brett, number 105. So, sorry to interject. He's actually he is uh, announcing his commitment, I think, in a, cu- in a couple weeks. I think early August, and we're, we're projected to get him. So that's, that's pretty good news. So Yeah, so I think he's actually someone that we're, we have a pretty good chance of getting pretty soon. And, and after Osbury... Um, there's only two other players in the top 200 where Notre Dame's considered, you know, kind of even hanging around the hoop. Um, but we don't have crystal balls. You know, there, there's one more name to track, Ronan Hannafin. He's a, uh, you know, kind of a diamond in the rough from a small Massachusetts school. A few months ago, he was ranked in like the 500s in recruiting cycles and has already moved up to a top 300 uh, recruit a, a four star now being looked at by Clemson, Alabama. We're in the hunt. Um, it seems like he, he's gelled well with Notre Dame's coaching staff so far. So be on the lookout for, for Hannafin to possibly in the mix. But by and large, I think the big recruiting wave is done. And so the question is, where will this class ultimately get ranked if it, 
you know, rounds out with maybe a couple more four stars, maybe a quarterback flip we referenced earlier, maybe a few more three stars. The 20 commits we have right now is, is number two. That has 286 points on the 24-7 um, scoring system. So if 286 points held and you just got Osbury, that would likely move us to 293 points in their calculation. 293 points in the last five cycles would have ranked number six, number five, number five, number three, and number four. So right around a top five class, that's something we haven't done since 2013. Um, that's assuming, again, we don't flip any more four stars. That's also assuming no decommit. So that, that could work both ways. Um, but, you know, if we wanted to jump into the top three, if you wanted to even go up another step, Notre Dame would have to go and pluck off someone in addition to Osbury. Don't know if that'll happen. Certainly could. Long ways to go. But, but no one that we're currently looking at right now. Definitely. So I think it's, it's like we're looking really good. And in, in previous cycles, like we mentioned, we've been ranked really highly coming into, coming into the fall, but we've always fallen off. I think this class is different. We have a lot of talent just top to bottom. And we're, I think we're easily in a position to secure a top five class. And if a few things bounce our way, we could be contending for a top three spot. I think number one, I don't think we're going to be able to get number one. If we'd gotten Dante more, then I, I would say that we actually might have had a bit of a shot at like a top two spot. But uh, short of short of that like elite, elite QB, it's going to be tough. Now, moving back to something you were alluding to, Brett, does this class put, does this class plus the, 22, the 2022 class put Notre Dame in a position to contend for a title? So we think yes, but we need to give some context. First and foremost, we need an elite QB. Maybe that's Buckner as an upper upperclassman. He's, he's certainly shown some flashes. People are positive about him in practice. He has all the physical tools, but it does remain to be seen. You know, even if he's just a, an above average QB, I think that's like helpful. But to really break through, you need you need one of those elite QBs who's going to be getting NFL attention from like a you know from for the first round basically. Uh, but maybe it's maybe it's CJ Carr. He's the uh, like as we mentioned the five star commit in the 2024 class, grandson of Lloyd Carr. But currently, we don't have a recruit in the 2023 class. And Steve Angeli in the 2022 class appears to be more of a developmental prospect than an elite caliber QB. Now, I will say he looked pretty good in the spring game. But uh, that's, again, you don't want to take too much away from from from, from, from those. Um, so we'll see. But, yeah, I mean, I think the big takeaway is we've been stacking talent. Things are looking good from a building you know, up our rankings in the uh, talent composite from a blue chip ratio standpoint. We're, we're finally feeling like filling in these like positions that we've struggled at uh, in the past. But the, really, the biggest key is just like an elite QB. And um, moving on to another metric that we talk about a lot, and that's the blue chip ratio. Again, we talked about it last year. We'll recap it again here for, for new listeners. This was coined by Bud Elliott. He's an editor, editor at twenty four seven, and really a pioneer of sorts in tracking college football recruiting. So the blue chip ratio measures the ratio of four-star and five-star players on your roster or in your recruiting classes. It doesn't determine who will win a national championship, but it does set a clear boundary, and it's proved pretty pretty predictive uh, within the confines of this boundary in the past. It's essentially a prerequisite, a minimum, to get in the door. And what is that minimum? So it's generally 60%. It's essentially saying you need 60% of your roster, of your players to that you've recruited to uh, be either four or five stars. So... Of your 85 scholarship players, at least 50 need to be four stars and five stars uh, for that to be uh, above 60%. Over the last half decade, teams that get blown out in the college football playoffs, so you can include us in there, get blown out because there's a there's a talent gap. Generally, we've hovered around 50 60% during Kelly's tenure. I would say that's like good enough to like get to those games. 
And it's good enough to, at times, compete with those teams, but it's definitely not good enough to regularly beat these teams. We knocked off Clemson one time uh, during the COVID year, but you're not, you're not, if you don't have a talent level above that 60%, it's going to be really tough to string together enough games against that, those elite, elite uh, teams uh, to win a championship. Some other examples of teams that are like just below that magical 60% Wisconsin, Michigan State, Baylor, Washington. So these are all programs that have had really good teams in the past, but then when they get matched up against these elite programs, they're frankly victim to getting blown out in the playoffs. Exactly. And, and what's really interesting too is this threshold has gone up over time. So a lot of the offseason articles this year, Bud Elliott's annual article hasn't come out yet, but they used to reference 50% was the threshold. So if you go back and listen to our, our shows from last year when we talked about the blue chip ratio, we say the goal is to be above 50%. Everyone's now saying it's 60% or, or, or maybe higher. And, and what that really gets after is Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama today, this year, is way more talented than the 2012 Alabama team that torched Notre Dame in the BCS title game. The, the, the top teams are getting even more and more talented over time. That The talent is congregating into fewer and fewer teams at, at that elite level. And it's pushed the kind of prerequisite talent level even up higher before. And so examples of that is just looking at the last four champions. Um, so Georgia, Alabama, LSU... Clemson and, and Alabama again. Sorry, we'll go back five years. Um, they all had blue chip ratios of at least 60%. Going all the way back to 2011, the lowest blue chip ratio to ever win a championship was Clemson in, in 2016 with a blue chip ratio of 52%. But since then, it's really ramped up. So last year, Georgia and Alabama had blue chip ratios of 84% and 80%. Ohio State was right behind them at 79%. No other team was above 67%. So those three teams were really in a class of their own around 80%. And no surprise, Georgia and Alabama were playing in in the championship game. They, they were really playing in the majors, and everyone else was playing double-A ball. Similarly, the year before, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State were all in the low 80s, and no one else was above 64%. And of course, no surprise, Alabama and Ohio State were the clear cream of the crop, and in the college football playoff, they blew out Notre Dame. And by the way, everyone forgets, Ohio State blew out Clemson in that same college football playoff. So if Notre Dame wants to contend for title, not just get to the college football playoff, if they really want to get on that level with Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State, and frankly, Texas A&M is trending right up in that direction, um, you got to get the blue chip ratio from the mid-50s into, frankly, maybe not even the 60s. It's probably got to be high 60s or, or into the 70s. And and what that really means is we need to go from having half of our roster being four-star players to a clear, substantial majority of our roster being four- and five-star players. Yeah, I think the landscape, it keeps changing. So we keep inching up what, what that boundary is. And I think you're right, Brett. I think it was, it was 50% for a while, then it was 60%. Now it, feel, now it feels more like 65%. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're like, 63 and you have just like a all-time great QB like that that might be enough to, to win but again that's that's pretty tough it's, it's easier said than done to find those find those QBs we've been we've been looking for a while and we haven't had a great QB in quite some time Ian Book as good as he was he certainly was not someone like Trevor Lawrence he certainly wasn't like a Baker Mayfield Baker Mayfield didn't win a title but certainly someone that you would kind of say was uh Kind of at that level. Um, one yeah, thing and, I and by the out. way, when when Dabo won it with that lowest blue chip ratio in the last decade, with a um, you know fifty two percent blue chip ratio, 
Their quarterback, correct me if I'm wrong, that was Deshaun Watson, right? One of the best, you know, yeah. say what you want about his off-field scandal in the NFL, but a phenomenal, elite, once-in-a-generation college quarterback in Deshaun Watson really elevated the rest of that Clemson team before Dabo's now kind of turned into a recruiting juggernaut himself. But back then, they weren't a top-five talented team. They, they, you know, they were up there. They were good enough, but they had that elite QB to take them over the top. Yeah, and one other thing I want to point out. So actually just, like, apparently, the, so the 2022 blue-chip ratio is actually out now. So I, I just looked it up. And so I'm just going to mention a few data points here. Um, so Notre Dame, we're actually up to 62% right now in 2022. So we're above, I, you know, it's, if we're thinking it's more like 65%, we're like a little bit below. I, I guess you would say, like, as our roster is composed right now, we've been like, and this is before, like, you know, some. it's like we're getting a little bit of that Freeman impact from the last year. But if we add, like, this year's class and potentially next year's with a ton of blue chips, like, we could be starting to inch well above, like, 70%. But 62% where we're at right now, I think my mindset is that it's kind of what we were saying. It's like, if we had just, like, a great, great QB, maybe we could contend for a title. Right now, if we go up against Bama, uh, it's going to be pretty tough. So for some context, Bama is uh, their blue chip ratio. It's even higher than teams in the past. It's 89%. Dear it's 89%. God. It, that's, Saban that's is going to eat. The rest of college football, folks, you heard it here first. Alabama is your 2023 national champion. Yeah, and then interestingly, Ohio State, second, they're also like at a very high level, 80%. So that's at a, that is 80% is certainly a national title contending level, and that's what we're playing in week one. So that's tough. Uh, Georgia, they dropped to 77%. You know, Oklahoma's up there at A&M. We're actually like very close to Clemson, interestingly. So we're at 62%. Clemson is 63%. So we're kind of like, knows you know we're like right by Clemson so I I do think like Clemson has stacked some more five-star recruits than us so they certainly have that as an advantage but really if you look at the composition of like blue chip players we're actually not that far off from Clemson and currently we rank nine so I, I would say as far as like the upper crust goes we're not in the upper crust recent recruiting trends are looking pretty good though and we could maybe if, if they keep going this way maybe in a couple of years we could break through where we're at right now we're outside of that upper crust we're probably about as you know as good as you would like to be uh, it's like feasible. Maybe you could like win a championship again if you have one of these elite QBs. But um, looking at the uh, the twenty four seven like overall rankings, I think it's important to kind of like tie this blue chip ratio to that because that's like another way of, of looking at like the the roster on the team. So in the twenty twenty two class, our class was only number nine in the overall rankings, but it was uh is fourth in the blue chip ratio. And sorry, I, I misspoke there a little bit. I just meant not the not the composite, just like the overall class ranking. Um, and that was 21 commits overall, 17 were four stars. And how, how does that translate into a blue chip ratio? That's 76%. And now in 2023, uh, in this recruiting class, we already have 20 commits. 18 are four or five stars for a blue chip ratio of 90%. So we don't expect that to hold. My best guess is a few more four stars and a few more three stars. If you assume two each, that would bring the ratio down to about 85%. But that's still a wildly big step change from the Kelly area. The Kelly era that was consistently just slightly above 50%. So... As I was alluding to before, things are looking pretty good in these in these recruiting classes coming up. We're at 62%, which is technically above that 60% threshold. Like we said, we think 65 maybe is probably where it's at. But if you if we keep like adding classes like this, we could we could potentially get to like the level of like you know oh, I mean I, I don't want to be too optimistic, but it's like we could feasibly get closer to like 70, 75%, maybe even 80% if, if things go really well. And at that level you can actually compete for a title. Um, yeah, I mean, if, and if you just rolled off our senior class and rolled in this 2023 class, 
we would jump. So right now we have a 62% blue chip ratio, assuming no transfers in and outs, no decommits, you know, nothing funky. But if, if you just sort of say the trend line holds and you took our high school senior commits and removed our college senior upperclassmen, that 62% that Mike referenced would jump up to 69%. That's a big one-year jump, right? That would move us from the ninth team to the kind of tied for fifth team. That would put us like right in that grouping. You know, Alabama's still out there at 89%. I get it. Um, but you you really jump up in a hurry once this 2023 class gets on campus. Now, you got to caveat that. A lot more of your four and five stars are going to be underclassmen, not as developed yet, et cetera. But it should get people really excited about where this program goes in 2024, 2025, 2026. Completely agree with all that, Brett. Things are trending really well. It's looking like it's feasible and realistic for us to finally break through that barrier to where we have enough recruiting talent to contend for uh, for championship. And a lot of it's coming from cornerback and wide receiver positions that we didn't recruit at well. So if you're a Notre Dame fan, things are things are looking up from a recruiting standpoint. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. We will call it the golden standard. Okay, let's round out today's show with a Four Horsemen segment. For any new listeners, we end a lot of our episodes with our Four four Horsemen of a Topic. So that could be favorite South Bend bars, favorite plays from the season, etc. This week, we're going to do our Four Horsemen of the 2023 recruiting commit most likely to be an All-American for ND. A bit of a mouthful, but essentially we're looking at the 2023 class to see which of the recruits that are committed we think really have the potential to break through the next level and make quite quite an impact once they get to campus. Brett, you want to kick us off? I'll start with the low-hanging fruit, the obvious answer in the class, Keon Keeley. Again, he's our five-star right now, top 10 player in the country uh, for, for a high school incoming senior. Elite frame at six foot six, two hundred forty pounds. Um, a lot of the comparisons, if if you go through the recruiting profiles, is Aaron Lynch and Stefan to it. Um, but someone who's already ahead of where they were in terms of body and athleticism, makeup um, at that point in their high school career. So, um, you know, some other comparisons I saw are to the Bosa brothers at Ohio State. So there's a reason why he's a top 10 recruit in the country. It seems like he's going to come in and be a day one impact. Very likely you're staring at a first round pick in, in the NFL draft. And I get it's so hard to put that pressure on a high school kid, but this is about as physically gifted of a recruit that Notre Dame has had in a really, really long time. And I'm, I'm really excited about what he brings to campus. Definitely. We haven't had, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, someone at his level uh, of a recruiting profile in, in quite some time. Um, so not surprising that he would be one of our top picks. Now, for me, I'm going to move on to one of the wide receivers. And, yes, you heard me right, one of the wide receivers. Bit of a cop-out answer, but Jaden Greathouse, Braylon James, Enrico Flores, they're, so they're all in that 100 to 200 recruit range. Um, I think I'm going to go – I do think, like, maybe taking a step back and thinking about it a little bit more, if I had to pick, gun to my head, um, I think I'm going to go with Braylon James. So Greathouse and Flores are both considered more finished products. They're great route runners. They're great at getting separation. They have great frames at 6'1 and 6'2, but neither are considered to have any particularly elite athletic traits. Uh, like certainly they're very, they measure very extremely well in some areas, but it's not one of those like elite, elite flies off the charts type traits that you see. Braylon James, he's a bit more raw, but he has much more of that athletic upside. He's not only is he 6'3, he's a little taller, 
but he also has longer arms for quite a large uh, catch radius. And then he also just ran an official 4.47 in the uh, in the 40 yard dash. So really impressive speed at the high school level. I think when you add that all together, I think he just has so much athletic upside to reach an elite All American level and and be that type of receiver that we that we haven't regularly had. We've had a, we've had a number of good receivers over the years, but we just haven't been able to string together multiple ones of them at the same time, like you see at places like Ohio State and Alabama. And I think uh, I think Braylon James certainly has the potential to to be one of those one of those dudes that can really change a game from an offensive standpoint. De- definitely a bit more boomer bust of a recruit just from where he's at in his development. You know, if, if you flip the question of who's most likely to be a starter junior, senior year, it's, it's maybe Jaden Greathouse and Rico Flores. But if it's who's most likely to really boom and, and be that elite player, agreed, a lot of upside in, in Braylon James. For number three on our four horsemen of most likely All-Americans out of this recruiting class, I'm going to go with a bit of a surprise on my next pick. And it's a surprise because I'm going to go with offensive tackle, but not say Charles uh, Jugasa. He's the top 50 recruit, considered one of the best linemen in, in this class. I'm going to go the different offensive line recruit in, in this group. Sullivan Absher, he's a top 200 recruit. Very solid four-star, right? So it's not like I'm going you know, way out on a limb with, with a three-star here. But really similar comparisons to Braylon James in the sense that he's got a lot of upside. He's taller and longer than Jagasa. He's about 25 pounds lighter, though, which to me what that really means is he's got a lot more potential to put weight on his frame and, and have physical development. And the other biggest thing is he currently plays in a triple offense uh, triple option offense in high school in, in Belmont, North Carolina. And that means two things. One, he's considered one of the best run blockers at getting to the next level in high school. Really an elite ability to stay pad level and power through defensive linemen, a, a technique that's just critical to being a successful run blocker at the college level um, where he could come in and, and really contribute day one in, in that facet of the game. But then number two, no one's really seen him as a pass blocker, and I think that's really hurting his recruiting ranking. The fact that he's playing in a triple option offense, he's not going up against rush defenders or, or you know elite pass rushers. And so that side of his game will definitely be a development project. But I'm really excited about what Harry Heastan can, can do with this kid and kind of work with a raw piece of clay to, to really mold into that prototypical Harry Heastan product. You know, I, I just start getting vibes of Ronnie Stanley when I think about a long, lanky kid coming in that's a little underweight and not quite the best technique, and you get him in the weight room, and you get Harry Heastan working with him, and, and the finished product comes out of a first-round NFL draft pick. So really excited about Apsher. Maybe I'm too high on him as you know someone with a little bit more of a you know development project coming out of a triple-option offense. But I'm, I'm bullish on Harry. He stand as our offensive line coach, and, and so I'm going to go with uh, Absher as our third All-American from this class. Definitely. No, I think that's a good pick. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a college football offensive line coach better suited to develop players like this than, than Heat stand. I mean, if it was uh, if it was Quinn, I don't. I would imagine maybe that would have like changed your calculus a little bit on this one. There'd be a little less certainty that he would. I mean, there's not certainty, but there'd be a little less optimism, I think. Now. So far, two predictions that we've had are a bit more boomer bust, and then we had a safe pick in Keon Keeley. I mean, Keon Keeley is more just—he's just, he's just uh, 
you know, he's just like not risky. He's like it's it's, it's just someone who seems like a clear like can't miss prospect. I don't want to like jinx him or anything, but it just seems like it's one of those guys who's just like too good, too much upside. He just pretty much checks every box. He's just like kind of like a no brainer. So to wrap this up, I'm going to end the Four Horsemen with Peyton Bowen. He's a top 50 recruit, number five safety in the class. And I'm going to tip my hat to the secondary that will surround this guy as an upper class. When you got Christian Gray, Micah Bell, Adon Schuler, uh, there are three other four star recruits in the secondary, not to mention Jaden Mickey, who's been, uh, making quite a wave since he arrived on campus as an early, an early enrollee. He's an incoming freshman. There's a lot of optimism from the staff about what he's going to be able to bring. I don't, is he going to be able to start this year? Who knows? But it seems like he could, he is someone who could definitely solidly be in the rotation. Now, Bowen, he's a two-way player in high school. He brings great ball skills uh, as a wide receiver at the, at, 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 uh, as a player at the high school level. He's rangy, explosive first step. Every recruiting analysis references his feel for the game and explosiveness. And every recruiting profile ends something like it feels really dangerous to make this comparison, but he's Kyle Hamilton 2.0 as a high school player. That's extremely high praise. That's something I think Notre Dame fans, we all know how big a praise that is, and we don't want to be too optimistic. But uh, when you hear that, it gets you pretty excited. You have to note he's, he's slightly higher ranked than than Hamilton was. Granted, Ham, like we mentioned before, Hamilton surged kind of at the end. And I think if he had been properly evaluated, he probably would have ended up being a high five-star. But I'm going to lean in here. I'm going to say this guy's an All-American for the 2026 Irish campaign. One other note I have to make, he is one of the people in the class who – is seems a little bit higher risk for potentially like flipping. He's continued to go on some unofficial visits. Mostly, I think it's like with his little brother, who's also a good prospect. He's made a lot of comments showing that he's fairly strongly committed. But anytime you're visiting other places, you know it's going to make you feel a little uh, a little more nervous. But as of now, he seems solid, and I think he's uh, assuming he sticks. He's someone who's going to be putting up some uh, putting up some really good production for us in the future. That rounds out the show. We'll be back next week to keep the season preview rolling. Until then, Garish. Garish.